This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I instinctively felt I didn't want to do any song that I didn't have a feeling for. I'm not, I wasn't going to do a song just because I was suggested I should do it. So I let that feeling guide me. Just do what feels right, you know, and what feels fun. And, and we never took a formulaic approach. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I am usually your producer, but today I am your other host, Cameron Drews. Hi, Cameron. So who did you talk to for this week's episode? So the voice we heard at the top of the episode may be familiar to some. It belongs to none other than the legendary children's musician, Raffi. Karen, are you familiar with Raffi's work at all? Oh my gosh, yes. Although that said, <laughs> I don't know that I could name too many of his songs beyond maybe like Banana Phone and like mm-hmm. Baby Beluga. Yeah, I would say that Baby Beluga, which is a song that came out in 1980, 80 is probably <laughs> his most famous song. Baby Beluga, baby Beluga, is the water warm? Is your mama home with you so happy? Nice little song, right? It's so nice. It's so like instantly like groovable. I know. It kind of reminds me of some of like Paul McCartney's songs for the Beatles mm, that kind of mm-hmm. sound like they could be for kids, like when I'm 64. Sort yeah, of, yeah, you know? yeah. So Raffi has been a children's musician for the past four going on five decades. His first kids album came out in 1976. So multiple generations of kids have grown up with this music. I was Mm -hmm. listening to him in the 90s. It was some of the first music I ever connected with, period. Mm -hmm. And I should also say that I got the idea to interview Rafi a while back, many, many months ago. Working co-host Isaac Butler mentioned that his daughter had been listening to a song called The Gummy Bear Song over and over and over, and he couldn't take it anymore. Uh, For reference, that song sounds like this. Oh, I'm a gummy bear. Yes, I'm a gummy bear. Oh, I'm a yummy, chummy, funny, lucky gummy bear. Oh, okay. It's a little grating, right? Um, Yeah. I wouldn't call that, like, necessarily pleasant to listen to. Right. And I'll be honest, like, I don't have kids, so I'm not that familiar with the children's music landscape. But 
when I think of contemporary kids music, I think of stuff that is a little annoying, for lack of a better <laughs> word. You know, like, not that it's all annoying, but let's not forget about a song that was sweeping the nation and the world a few <laughs> years ago, Baby Shark, which sounds like this. Yeah. Sort of an earwormy quality to it. Mm -hmm. But Rafi's music, it just isn't annoying. In fact, it can be really, really moving and pleasant. Like one of my favorite songs of his is a song called Thanks A Lot from the Baby Beluga album. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the sun in the sky. Thanks a lot Thanks for the clouds so high So not exactly the Gummy Bear song. His music is like, it's really beautiful and it's also, it feels like more substantial, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, and that's what really strikes me about his music it has endured for many many decades there is a lot of Mm -hmm. depth to it so i wanted to talk to him about his process starting all the way back in the 70s you know how was he able to make such enduring kids music yeah because again as you say he's been doing this for decades now and like i still instantly like recognize his name and i think a lot of other people do too and there's something weirdly comforting like just based on the little clip we've already heard about the way that he gives what is really such frightening advice, which is just do what feels right. But yeah. all right, so before we get to the rest of your conversation, what can Slate Plus listeners look forward to this week? Well, in the main interview, you'll hear Rafi talk about a philosophy that he developed a couple of decades ago called child honoring. And in the Slate Plus segment, he tells me a little bit about a child honoring course that he offers through his nonprofit foundation. It's pretty interesting. Oh, oh, I cannot wait to listen to that. Slate Plus members will hear that at the end of the episode, but if you're not a Slate Plus member but want to hear that segment anyway, why not join Slate Plus? As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows like The Waves, Culture Gap Fest, and Amicus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash working plus to access all of Slate's content and to support our work. All right, let's hear Cameron's conversation with Rafi Kavukian. Rafi, welcome to The Working Podcast. Thanks for being here. Hello, we are working. (laughs) We sure are. So I actually want to start this conversation all the way back in the 70s when your career changed, right? You went from being a regular folk musician making music for, I guess, a general audience, you might say, and uh, you started making music for kids. How'd that happen? How did that happen? Well, I began my work with children singing in classrooms in Toronto. Mm -hmm. There was a program that used to pay folk singers like me to come into the classroom, sing a few songs, It might be kindergarten, grade one, grade two. I started, you know, gathering a little repertoire of songs to sing. Mm -hmm. It could be uh, 
Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star for the real little ones or Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. You know, just all kinds of standards and folk songs that little kids would enjoy. And that was quite a learning uh, process for me. I was then married to a wonderful kindergarten teacher, very compassionate, who taught me all about young children as whole people. And that was quite a, an awakening for me mm -hmm. to think of the young child as a whole person, to treat uh, young children with respect. Respect became the core value throughout my whole career. So that was an early lesson learned well by yours truly. <laughs> uh -huh. And I definitely want to talk about the themes you explore in your music for kids. But first, I want to hear more about this musical pivot from playing to adult audiences and making music with them in mind to making music or performing music with kids in mind. Like, how would you describe the difference in those two modes musically? The music with kids, um, you know, is uh, fun because it needs to be. Mm -hmm. You know, this was music that you would do at 10 o'clock in the morning instead of, you know, <laughs> yeah. 8, 8 o'clock in the evening type of thing. And it was fun. I noticed that I felt uh, oddly relaxed in front of kids. <laughs> yeah. I didn't feel any pressure at all. Um, and I was well coached by my, my kindergarten uh, teacher wife as to, you know, how to go about these early sessions. So one thing led to another. And... Um, it was when I recorded singable songs for the very young in 1976. That first uh, album of, well, songs that children could make their own, hence the word singable, that first album opened up a whole new career for me. It was very exciting, actually. Yeah, and I want to talk about some of the specific choices you made on that 1976 album, and it's probably the choices you were making when you were singing in classrooms, too, because that album has a real assortment of songs, right? There are some pre-existing songs. Uh, there are sort of new takes on traditional songs. There are some songs that sound like complete originals to me. So how did you decide what that track list would be and, and just in general what songs you wanted to do for kids? Mm -hmm. Well, my then wife uh, and her two uh, primary school teacher friends the three of them became the educational committee that uh, advised me uh -huh. on the, what songs to include and so on. And um, so that was, uh, that was handy. And I instinctively felt I didn't want to do any song that I didn't have a feeling for. I'm not, I wasn't yeah. going to do a song just because I was suggested I should do it. You know, you, yeah. you got to feel good about the material. You, you have to feel good about singing it and playing it on your guitar. So I let that feeling guide me. Just do what feels what feels right, you know, and what feels fun. And, and uh, so it turned into quite the uh, blend of traditional songs and well-known songs, as well as a couple of, uh, as we say in the music industry, third-party compositions, <laughs> most uh -huh. notably Robin in the Rain, which is an old, old song from the 1940s, I understand. And then I, I added a couple of my own songs. Uh, one was called I Wonder If I'm Growing. Yeah. There was another song, uh, the sharing song. There was uh, one more that I wrote, Peanut Butter Sandwich. Mm -hmm. So this eclectic compilation of songs became a hit <laughs> really yeah. quickly. 
And the engineer on that very first project was none other than musician and uh, producer extraordinaire, Daniel Lanois. Mm -hmm. We recorded the album in the basement of his mother's home. <laughs> yeah, for, for listeners who don't know, Lanois uh, went on to produce for big name artists, Bob Dylan, Neil Young. Yes. In, in fact, uh, that album gave him his first gold album. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I do want to talk about some of the original songs on that album, but first I am wondering, you said you had some people who acted as sort of advisors to you, but I, I'm almost wondering where they were picking these from. Like I was to take an example the more we get together. I was trying to look up sort of the origins of that song. And if you Google the more we get together, your version comes up first. You've popularized that song. But when you try to look at how it existed before you, it gets a little harder. It's sort of an obscure song and the melody dates back to 1800 or so. There are certain songs that are well known and they, they endure because they are well known. That song the more we get together is kind of kind of an umpapa song you know it comes from europe it's a waltz the more we get together 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 the more we get together the happier we'll be and apparently it's been translated into a number of languages and it never loses its original meaning mm -hmm. and in fact decades later economists uh came to call the more we get together the social capital theme song. Oh. Robert Putnam, an economist who wrote uh, a book called Bowling Alone, uh -huh. called The More yep. We Get Together, the <laughs> social capital theme song, uh, because there's a, it contains a truism. When people get together, they are happier, yeah. generally. I mean, we're social animals, so it speaks to that. But generally, we were choosing songs that we, uh, when I say we, my, my teacher friends uh, mm. knew new songs yeah. that children love to sing. Yeah. And a lot of these songs were, were well-known and some were obscure. And so that's that was the process. Yeah, I was even thinking about Peanut Butter Sandwich has original lyrics. It has a melody that is a little familiar. Yes. A peanut butter sandwich made with jam. One for me and one for David Amram. A peanut butter sandwich made with jam. Stick, 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 stick. Is that another example of Correct. something that's just kind of in the air? Like, did you have to look up, oh, I'm using this melody, I need to see if someone owns it or something? Or were you just like... Well, yeah, I mean, you do a little bit of that. You don't want mm -hmm. to, obviously, uh, uh, use somebody's melody if it's copyrighted. Yeah, so yeah. those kinds of things, those considerations were there, yes. You know, some of these folk songs... And these folk melodies may or may not have originally been composed for kids in their early version, right? And you have decided that they make good kids' music. Why do you think that is? Well, I don't know. I mean, you take a song like Down by the Bay, yeah. which has, be has become among the two or three songs that I'm most known for. It's a fun song to sing. It's funny. You know, you can make rhymes yeah. that, are, that are hilarious. Yeah. Uh, a goose kissing a moose, you know, or... Lemmas eating their pajamas. I mean, it was like wide open, you know, what rhymes I could do. So I just went for, <laughs> yeah. went for hilarity, and boy, did that work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of course. For if I do, my mother will say, 
Did you ever have a time when you couldn't make a rhyme? Down by the bay, down by the bay. Yeah, and it became my adaptation of a traditional song, which is yeah. often what, what can happen. I love hearing you talk about how relaxed you were performing around kids and how much fun you can have with these songs. Can you talk about how your creative life opened up a little bit because of that? Mm-hmm. The thing about making music for children is, you know, when you keep your audience in mind with respect for them as young people, just at the beginning of life, who are, who are not only creative, uh, but they're full of wonder, you yeah. know, then everything is fresh, everything is new. So yeah. you can sing a song about a, a butterfly and that's, that becomes, a, you know, a joy, a, a, a source of wonder for a child. So like with that first album, Singable Songs for the Very Young, because I wasn't recording it for radio, <laughs> yeah, radio airplay, right. then, then there's a wide open sense of what could be included, you know, and so there's a as there ha- has always been in all of my children's albums, an eclectic mix of songs that generally uh, wouldn't occur uh, on a pop album or a rock album, you know. Yeah. And I understood that right away, and, and I felt a, a freedom and, and a joy in, uh, in doing that, you know. Yeah. So it's fun again. So I do want to talk about the original songs and original lyrics and um, the themes that you wanted to explore when you decided to make a kid's album. And uh, I, by way of example, I do want to talk about I Wonder If I'm Growing. It's a really nice song. It is, And you've done something interesting with it where you have taken on the perspective of a kid. The speaker of mm-hmm. the song is a kid mm-hmm. who is wondering if they're growing, kind of looking yep. for evidence <laughs> because it's not it's not clear right. that they are right. growing. I wonder if I'm growing. I wonder if I'm growing. My mom says yes I'm growing, but it's hard for me to see. My Tell me about that song and and why you decided to include that one. I drew on my childhood memory for for writing that song. I remember being four and a half, and I couldn't wait to be five, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember that yep. as, a, as a young memory, as an old memory. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it just seemed to be a, a lovely sentiment to write about. I wonder if I'm growing. Every child wonders if they're growing. Yeah. And as it turns out, that song, that recording on which I used the nylon string guitar, actually one of the very few that I did that for. It had such a simplicity to it and a beautiful flute instrumental, a wooden flute. Something came together. There was an an unselfconscious rendering of the vocal on my part and so on. So people came to love it. It touched them, you know, and then, hey, I can reach the top now for the very first time today. That, yeah. That's a moment in, in children's lives, and parents recognize that. Yeah. So, I don't know, some wonderful things came together in that recording. Yeah. So, what other themes were you thinking about exploring lyrically with these songs when you were thinking... You know, what do I want to communicate to kids? What will kids 
want to hear? Well, you know, with young children, the song topics that come to mind right away are songs that that make you laugh, mm -hmm. songs about animals, <laughs> of course, <laughs> songs about wonder, yeah, songs about the human body, like uh, head and shoulders, knees and yeah. toes, kind of thing. Uh, plus, you draw on. Uh, The traditional songs that have always been fun to sing, whether it's Baba Black Sheep or Sing When the Spirit Says Sing, or yeah. Six Little Ducks, you know. And I was having fun in those first few children's recordings, um, sort of tapping the, the, the spectrum of what was available and what came to mind. And then also what I felt inspired to write, because I kept writing my own songs. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got to the Corner Grocery Store album, the third album, I had written a number. And then Baby Beluga, that fourth album in 1980, I think that was the one on which the songs that I wrote, people were telling me they liked them as much, if not more, than the other songs on the album. And I went, wow, really? I was uh -huh. amazed. I was, you know, so, so my confidence as a songwriter for children and families Yeah, was growing, and by Baby Blue album, it was really something to to get those accolades. Is thanks a lot? Is that on the big mm. Baby Blue album? Correct. That's yes, that one of your one prettiest of songs, I think. Thank you. And then uh, there was another one that was a big hit on that album, "All I Really Need." Yes. Yeah. And the recording of that is quite something. There's a, there's quite a. <laughs> it starts with a. <laughs> makes me laugh to think about it. It starts with um, an a cappella rendering of the chorus uh -huh. with some harmony, and then there's this big sort of drum fill. Uh -huh. <laughs> That starts the song. All I really need is a song in my heart. And sometimes I listen to it and I go, gee, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> you did the drum fill personally? No, no, no. Or, no I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I chose that. I yeah. chose that as the, as how to start the song. You know, <laughs> we, yeah. we were kind of we, we. When I say we, Ken Whiteley, who who's a, an amazing multi instrumentalist and musicologist, friend of mine from the seventies. He and I and Daniel Lanois and the wonderful musicians we were working with, we just kind of went for it. We were just having yeah. fun, you know. So. Yeah. But it's also interesting. We we weren't trying to impress anybody. We you know there was no radio airplay we were going for. So it was just it was a very sort of there was an innocence to the fun we were having. I, I would say. We'll be back with more of Cameron's conversation with Rafi Kavukian after this. the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com slash working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, listeners. We want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now let's return to Cameron's conversation with Rafi Kavukian. I do want to talk to you about instrumentation a little bit. I, when preparing for this interview, I surveyed the children's music landscape a little bit, and I noticed a lot of, uh, you know, electronic instruments, programmed drums and stuff. Uh, you have, throughout your career, stuck with more traditional instruments fewer electronic sounds. What kind of thinking has gone into those instrument choices? I think when you hear that early work, you listen to it, you'll find that there's quite a wide range of instrumentation. Mm -hmm. The the trumpet in Willoughby Wallaby Woo is beautifully Mm -hmm. played. Yeah. There's even a horn section in Baby Beluga, actually, that, which actually surprised me. It's almost like a Dixieland feel in the third verse. You know? Yeah, yeah. These choices came almost organically, just out of a sense of sheer fun. Yeah. And, and what would suit a song? That was always what we were going for. What, what would... What would sound good on this song? How are we going to dress up this one? You know, type of thing. Yeah. And we never took a formulaic approach, ever. Yeah. You know, it was it was just whatever a song needed or could use, or you know, whatever the whimsy, wherever the whimsy could take us, you might say. Yeah, yeah. That, it, it, that's such a pure creative way of doing it. Yeah. Because I, I wonder if there were any considerations. Uh, you know, kids like to listen to songs over and over and over and over again. And if you're a parent of a kid who's playing Baby Shark or something over and over again, you uh, might get very annoyed. Is that like something you ever think about? Or are you like, uh, parents are going to be listening to this. I don't want to get on their nerves. Yeah, I won't comment on Baby Shark because I don't. I haven't even heard that. But okay, okay. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Certainly I was aware that uh, parents would be listening to these songs and, you know, you make music not to alienate anyone. You make, you just try and make good music. And that's what we were doing is we were trying to make the best sounding 
uh, fun versions of these songs as we could do. Yeah. So I want to pivot to some business decisions you've made in your career. You have made a point over the years to avoid, you know, excessive advertising and marketing. I even read that um, you turned down uh, an opportunity to make a baby beluga movie, for example. Can you talk about that decision to avoid that sort of excessive commercialism directed right at your young audience? Well, uh, my record stands that I have never done a commercial aimed at children. In fact, I don't think I've ever done any commercials at all. Uh-huh. It's right. just not what I was interested in. And there was no way I was going to take part in uh, direct marketing to children. That's not ethical. It exploits the innocence of a young child who doesn't know what's being pitched to them. So right from the start, I, you know, all along I refused. I just turned down every commercial offer that that came to us and there were quite a few i I might add Mm -hmm. (laughs) quite a few people wanting me to do commercials and i just said no and i'm proud of that with the movie uh idea there was no way i was going to take part in a movie for kids uh that would then be directed uh to them uh in in direct marketing uh that would then have all kinds of cheap products that would be sold at fast food joints and all that. I wanted yeah. none of it. Forget it. So uh, it never took long to say no to these to these offers because it's not what the music's about. It's not what my values are about. It's not what respect for children is about. Yeah, I mean, of course you need to reach an audience or, you know, you need to make sure you're... Um I, or I'm trying to think like if I were a slick Hollywood agent or something, I would say like, hey, if you do more marketing and promotion, your audience would grow, you would reach more kids. Um, are, are you limiting your audience at all by not selling Raffi t-shirts or something? I was reaching a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> I had sold out concerts from coast to coast, both in Canada and the United States. Yeah. So... It, there wasn't. It wasn't like there was this huge need to suddenly expand my horizons. You know, I was. In fact, I wanted my career to grow slowly enough that I could understand the changes it was putting me through. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want a rapid sort of growth of of what I was doing, and I'm really happy that I stayed with that feeling. You know. Yeah. Was that a a difficult decision? No, it was just a conscious choice. Yeah. Just not not to let things get too frenetic, not to grow too fast with it all, you know. There were milestones along the way. I mean, in 1984, I recorded my first concert video, a young children's concert with Rafi. And yeah. then in January of 86, Disney Channel uh, aired it with not one edit. Uh-huh. And that was a big coup. Disney uh-huh. wasn't in the habit of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that really expanded the audience. And suddenly folks who came to see me in concert saw me as a movie star or like a TV star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Compared to just an audio recording star. You see what I mean? Yeah. And and you could always tell the ones who now saw me as a TV star because they were the ones in those days who brought cameras and wanted a photo of me. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I want to jump forward quite a ways in time here and talk about your focus on climate action and environmentalism in recent years. I know you wrote a song called Young People Marching a few years ago that was inspired by Greta Thunberg. Yes, but, but let's keep in mind, these are not songs aimed at children. Okay. Yeah, so talk about that. Um, who, who are they aimed for? Let me uh, set the stage then. Let me give you some context. Um, sure. All along the way, I've had songs of appreciation of, our, of the natural world that we live in, that we depend on, a celebration of our big, beautiful planet and its marvels. Um, Baby Beluga, that song itself, that album has a feeling of environmental appreciation, of course. Yeah. I think what happened uh, along the way is, uh, I don't know if you realize this, or, and people listening in may not know this, but in 1997 I got uh, woken from a sound sleep by a vision, uh, by a peak experience that gave me a philosophy, a unique philosophy, with just two words, child honoring. And mm-hmm. that, when I responded to a clear calling to develop this philosophy and make it the work of the rest of my life, effectively in saying yes to that moment, I later figured out that I had said yes to a second career. So not only have I had a career uh, making music, uh, both in you know recordings and concerts for children throughout four or five decades now, but mm-hmm. for the last 25 years, there has been this philosophy. It's a holistic vision that connects person, culture, and planet with the universal child as the heart of it, because mm-hmm. all of us were once children, even if we don't have kids of our own. And Children are children the world over, regardless of color, economic standing, or, or ethnicity. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's the human heart that's beating, and that's the huge good news of the interconnectedness of our species that we see most vividly in the very young of our species. That's an astonishing thing, if you think yeah. about it. So, my climate songs... Uh, for example, 2007, I wrote, I wrote one inspired by Al Gore, and mm. it's called Cool It. Uh-huh. I, call, I call it the global cooling song. <laughs> <laughs> cool it, cool it, cool this planet down. Cool it, cool it down. And then I wrote in 2019, inspired by Greta Thunberg, I wrote um, Young People Marching, which is quite upbeat, just like... Yeah. Cool, it, cool it's very upbeat in a rockabilly style. Young people are marching has a different style, but quite upbeat. Young people speaking their truth to power. The science is clear. It's late in the hour for climate action. Reducing GHGs. It's part of the songs that I've written and recorded throughout the last... I don't know, 25 years, with child-honoring themes, actually, as well. Child-honoring has uh, nine principles. Respectful love, diversity, uh, conscious parenting, emotional intelligence, nonviolence, 
caring communities, sustainability. I mean, it's quite comprehensive uh, and holistic. The uh, slogan of the Rafi Foundation for Child Honoring is respecting earth and child. Mm -hmm. That's the connection. I want parents to think of our planet Earth when they think of their children because what is child-friendly turns out to be Earth-friendly as well. Yeah. So it's respecting Earth and child as a slogan can, can motivate you to make the right choices in your purchasing and so on. You see, so it's yeah. a holistic, it's a child honoring is a holistic vision of, of living consciously in the world. So the focus on climate and, and I have focused on climate change. Yeah. Uh, I even have a poster that says, Rafi wants you <laughs> <laughs> to, jo- to join the climate movement. That's because climate, as you know, is the greatest threat facing our civilization. No one, I like to say no one uh, can guarantee a future, but who has the right to take it away? Who has the right to knowingly diminish our children's futures. Who has that right? And you better not answer Exxon. So these are serious matters uh, yeah. for a children's entertainer to consider. I know. I know. Yeah, you were saying, you know, a song like Cool It or Young People Marching isn't for children. But were you saying that you do try and fold the themes of child honoring into your music for kids? Well, there's got to be a distinction made here. Uh, yeah. In a way, all of my career for children has had child-honoring values. Right. But the work of my nonprofit organization, I don't try and, you know, take that work and infuse it in my children's songs. Yeah. There's my music career. There's my child-honoring work. They are, of course, related, but it's the job of adults to create a world fit for children, as they say at the United Nations, a world fit for children. Yeah. Because a world fit for children will be fit for all of us. You can't do it the other way. You can't go a world fit for adults and therefore it must work for young children. You can't do that. It doesn't work yeah. that way. Yeah. Things grow from the ground up. Yeah. Well, Rafi, thank you so much for joining us today on Working and talking about your great career and your <laughs> wonderful songs. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Coming up next, Cameron and I will talk about following your feelings and considering your audience. So stick around. Cameron, that was such a wonderful conversation. I was so charmed by how much of Rafi's process seems to be influenced solely by intuition and feeling, which I feel like is something that no matter how much we talk about it on the show, we tend to find really hard to follow in practice, not just in terms of finding that feeling that you want to follow, but in terms of allowing yourself to follow it. I definitely put a lot of limits on myself in that respect. And I was wondering if you do too and how you get around it and embrace it. Yeah, it's tricky. And I'm really lucky in this regard because the primary creative work I do is audio editing for this Mm -hmm. show and other shows. And that's largely about following my own taste. You know, when I'm turning an hour long conversation into a 30 minute conversation, for example, I'm mostly asking myself, 
am I bored right now? Am I excited? Am I confused? Like, what's my heart rate at this <laughs> moment? And how do I adjust accordingly? Right. But when you are doing work from scratch, I agree that it can be a lot harder because you have to believe that your taste is enough and that mm. it will get the job done, not just the taste of your imagined audience or your editor or the studio executive you sent your screenplay to. <laughs> but uh, I guess part of being an artist is hoping that your taste overlaps with your audience's taste, right? Right. Like, you have to be conscious of, like, what, what you want before you can... It's I guess it's sort of like the, the thing they tell you when you get on a plane, where they're like, put your own oxygen mask on before you help anyone exactly. else with it. It's like, you need to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but in that vein, Raffi also talked about having a, quote, unselfconscious rendering of the vocals on one of his songs being one of the reasons why it came together so well, which I think sort of connects to what we're talking about, like... You have to be self-conscious to a degree, but you can't be too self-conscious or otherwise you're ruining your own work. Um, So it's something that's both easy and difficult to accomplish, especially because the older we get, the more self-conscious you get about what you're doing. And it's not always good to be unselfconscious. I, I guess this is a pretty similar question to my last one, but when do you know when it's necessary to be self-conscious? Is it all about audience or is audience just one of the factors of it? Yeah, audience is definitely a part of it. The way you perform for someone else is different than how you perform in a vacuum. The cliche dance, dance like no one's watching. Like that (laughs) that kind of dancing is very different than dancing like your career depends on it or something, (laughs) which is a situation we rarely get into, uh, we non-dancers. But I I also think that um, I was thinking about that a lot, the way he used that word unselfconscious. Like, yeah. it, it kind of sounds like he means singing without putting on a certain voice or a certain persona mm-hmm. or thinking about how he should sound. And this is actually a problem I've noticed as an audio producer when I'm working with inexperienced podcast hosts. Like, they <laughs> kind of want to put on a podcast voice. And I even, like, caught myself doing that in this interview a little bit when I, because I'm a little inexperienced. And when I listen back, I'm like, that's kind of my voice, but uh, am I really, mm-hmm. do I really sound like myself? And I think... You know, that song, I Wonder If I'm Growing, it's one of the only original songs on an album full of adaptations. On other Mm -hmm. songs, you can sort of hide behind an existing piece of art. And for this one, he was digging into his own experiences. And I think sounding like himself was artistically very important to that song. And uh, But but achieving that unselfconsciousness is really hard. Actually saying, like, I am all this work needs the way I am that's scary (laughs) yeah it's terrifying to be vulnerable in front of an audience yeah Um, and obviously I do want to talk about audience too especially because I loved what he said about having respect for kids being key to his music and his success like kids media is so often dismissed as lesser or unimportant or facile in some way but I think culture is slowly coming around on the fact that that's simply not true But it's still true that you have to change the way you're thinking to make something for kids, if that makes sense. Like, how much should you be considering your audience and what kind of changes are you making because of that? It's funny. I kept asking him questions that I thought would yield a more analytical answer about his audience, you know. Mm -hmm. But he, he would always come back with some version of 
A, respect your audience, and B, just have fun. Mm. And I think what works for Rafi is that his he's compatible with his audience. Like, what he wants to play and sing about is sort of what his audience wants to hear. Uh, mm-hmm. When he was talking about I Wonder If I'm Growing, he was digging into personal experiences and you know, he was getting in the head of his audience a little bit. Like, he was yeah. sort of one with his audience in that moment. It was yeah. his experience and what the listener's experience is, probably. And, you know, he, he tapped into that. So maybe I'm maybe I'm overanalyzing this, or this is sort of like the, I don't know, this is quintessentially what Rafi should be, but I would almost say it's a mistake to say his music is aimed at kids. Mm-hmm. And it's more that, like what he's exploring as an artist is what it's like to be a kid. And that's also what a kid wants to hear. So there's sort of an alignment there. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I mean, I think that's why we don't like baby shark in the same way, you know, where (laughs) like it is calculated to be for kids in that way. Like it's like, yeah, you can feel it when you're listening to it. Yeah. And to that end, your conversation with Rafi was so wonderful because he was so, candid about having wanted his career to grow slowly enough that basically he could keep up with it and understand it. Like a lot of what I want to talk about is turning out to be how clear eyed he is about his life and his work, which is both very admirable and very unique. Or maybe it's just me that finds maintaining that kind of mindset really hard. But like, how do you process changes in your career? Because often it's easier to recognize and then navigate the fact that it's stagnating or going badly rather than progressing. And in the latter case, the impulse is to immediately accept whatever success you can. I mean, in Rafi's case, he was dealing with a a meteoric rise, Mm -hmm. right? Like he was suddenly very, very valuable and people were offering things. But, you know, other artists will experience this on smaller scales if suddenly you do become a little more valuable or you're in a position where people are offering you things and you can say yes or say no. And how do you follow your artistic principles and not just like, oh, this is this will bring a financial reward or this will get me to the next level or whatever, because those are obviously important considerations. Um, But it seems like Rafi mostly said no to opportunities that really go against his ethics or his artistic vision. Mm-hmm. And because he was successful, he was able to run those yeah. tests. Um, you know, when I was preparing for this interview, I learned that Rafi has turned down Madison Square Garden and other big venues like that that want him to perform because he just said, that's too big of a venue. It won't be an intimate enough experience. That's not the experience that I want to create for my audience. That's not mm-hmm. the artist. I am. But of course, it's not like he's choosing between Madison Square Garden and no performing. So it's easier (laughs) to say no when there are other options on the table and you have that level of success. I don't know. What do you think about this? I don't know. All of my decisions are obviously on a much smaller scale than Madison Square Garden (laughs) asking me if I want to go. But it's like... I don't know. I've definitely taken assignments that I didn't really want to do, like, because I was like, this will pay my rent for this month. Like, I have to do this. And I've definitely... I've more recently been able to say no to stuff because I'm like, I'm not interested in it or I don't have time for it because I have money from other things, like from other like lines of income. So everything's on a much smaller scale. Like I don't think I have had to consider like changes in my 
perceived level of success to like to this degree before yeah. or, or, or else this podcast would be very different <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and this is somewhat separate but hearing Rafi laugh about his own work is so lovely like when he's listening yeah. to the clips and laughs about it because he said he performed the way that he did then because it felt right because it felt suited to the song rather than being what the formulaic approach was and it still clearly evokes that sense in him like he still enjoys the work that he did back then yeah. I think it's rare to be able to look back and not regret anything about what you've done even if you are working with that kind of mindset because like i certainly have regrets about best work of mine uh and it sounds like you do too so i (laughs) want to ask how do you deal with it and how do you then deal with it or rather try to avoid that sense when you're making present work yeah oh there's definitely work that i am embarrassed about Mm -hmm. but i i think if you look back at art from the past and you don't cringe like maybe that means you're not growing and developing you know like I think I think the cringe is proof that your taste has been refined or something Mm -hmm. and I think there's a difference between looking back at art and saying that's embarrassing I wish I never did that Mm -hmm. versus looking back and being like I would make different creative choices, but I actually was trying my best with that. And yeah, that was a pretty yeah. good try. And I learned from that. Like, I am i don't know if Rafi loves that drum fill he was talking about. Maybe he doesn't, but he was mm. like, that was fun. And I'm glad that we had fun making that. Yeah, I guess it ultimately comes down to, like, sort of being able to maintain a more positive outlook about stuff. Where it's, like, yeah. even... I think it's important in the consumption of all art or like the way that you perceive any art, like not just your own, where if you look at it and you see something you don't like, it's not something that if it's not like problematic and like a true problematic way, like then it's not something that will like anger you. Like you'll be able to understand it on some level because we've all made mistakes in our lives. Yes. We hope that you've enjoyed this show. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like the Waves and Culture Gap Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. This episode was produced by me, so thanks to me, and thanks to Rafi Kavukian for being our guest this week. I also want to give a special shout-out to the podcast Finding Rafi, hosted by Chris Garcia. It was a big help when I was doing research for this interview, and if you want to learn more about Rafi, his life, and his work, go ahead and check out Finding Rafi wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's it for this week. We will be back next week with Karen's conversation with birder and ornithologist Isaiah Scott. It's going to be great. Until then, get back to work. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.